Dotnet Rocks episode 618 with guests John Waters and Walt Richer. Recorded live at DevReach in Sofia, Bulgaria, Tuesday, October 19th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at Franklin's.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Hey, Richard Campbell. Howdy, sir. How are you? I'm well. I feel very Bulgarian today. Yeah. Why is that? I'm, I'm full of... Barbecued meat and chopska salad. Yes. And that they've feed it to us. Chopska or shopska? Shopska. Shopska yes. salad. Okay. But uh, they Cucumbers eat really well over and here. And it shows because there aren't a whole lot of big people here, yeah. like in terms of, you know, like big like me. This is, wide. A, this is Atkins land. All you guys eat is vegetables and meat. That's right. So if you want to go on a, like a low carb, low glycemic diet, just go to Bulgaria for a while. Yeah. You'll, yeah. Yeah, cake? What is that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> they had cake the other day, but you notice it was about the size of a penny. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Little cakes. And bread is just a sort of afterthought. Whereas you go in America, you go to a restaurant, the first thing they give you is a pile of bread. Yeah, right. and then they come around for seconds. Yeah. Would you like more bread before your main meal gets here? Yeah, have some more bread. Would you like more <laughs> bread with your pizza? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if rakia counts as low carb, though. Oh, oh yes, it does. Yeah? Yeah, alcohol doesn't have carbs. Rakia has maybe a little sugar in it, though. I'm not sure. But if you drink enough of it, soon you're not eating anything. That's right. right. Or at least yeah. you're giving it all back. No, Actually, you're recycling yes. it, yes. <laughs> oh. Well, Richard, I guess we should introduce our guests here, since they've decided to pipe up and talk. Well, they're so, not shy that way. No. So, uh, uh, Walt Rich... Richer. Richer. Like, I wish I was richer. Uh, nice. Richer. But it's not spelled richer like R-I-C-H. It's no, R-I-T-C-H. I have German heritage, so you always have to put extra consonants in the middle of the, any word. Right. And you're a Wintelec guy? I do uh, work with Wintelec, yes. Oh, yeah. I have my own consulting company. I had it for about 15 years, and then I hooked up with them about three and a half years ago, and they get me a lot of work. And you've been doing a lot of teaching, as I understand. The sessions you're doing here are particularly about data binding. Yes, and most of the material I pulled right out of my WPF course. Nice. Which made it easy to... Get ready. And yeah. certainly you have some opinions around this whole data binding, data access, all that good stuff. I do. Excellent. And, and John Waters. That's me. The John Waters. The. One and only. A falafel. Falafel software. Yeah, we usually hear from Lino. What, what happened? You drew the short straw this time? Yeah, well, Lino, I think, is the reason why it's called falafel software. That nobody yeah. quite knows how that happened, but it did happen very early on in our history. Um, I've been with Falafel now for six years. And wow. Falafel's been around for seven years. So mm-hmm. in that first year, these terrible things happened. Yeah, yeah. That involved Falafel? Yes. So what are we talking about? Data access, data binding, all of the above? Data, data, data in a XAML world? It's your show. What do you want to talk about? Well, it's your, you're talking, so. I do find that folks are confused about what data access methodologies. For a while there, we right. had... Codename Astoria and Entity Framework was early revs, and you, you really didn't know how they all went together. And that seems to have settled down, but I still don't feel like I know the definitive answer or if there is, quote-unquote, one right way to get at data in the XAML world. Before we go too much farther, I just want to say that um, I've been you know, looking into 
uh, Astoria or WCF Data Services and and uh, and and all the, the the stuff that goes with it with Silverlight and RIA Services. And man, for the stuff that I'm writing, which I think is probably exemplary of a lot of applications out there at the scale I'm writing, I love web services, ADO.net, pulling back lists and getting it right into my, into my Silverlight app. It just works, and it's easy, and, so and it ain't say, broke. You're saying you like what Microsoft's produced. Yeah, I like what Microsoft's produced, but, you know... Uh, since .NET 2.0, uh, you know, ADO.NET has been just really stable and really good, and, and it works. And if it works for you, uh, you know, and if you don't need the kind of scale that uh, that Entity Framework offers, then why switch? Is that actually the switch? strength of Entity Framework, that it would scale? Well, Entity Framework, I think, works really well when you have um, an application with a lot of data access. And you have to do a lot of busy work replicating the CRUD operations. But, uh, you know, if you're just working with... John a, is nodding on a radio show. Yeah. yeah. Right. You, you, should, you should jump in on this. Nod. Show. Well, yeah. actually, I, I was going to say that there's a very basic strategy about data access, which, which works really well. We did this huge migration project of an ERP system. And as part of that, we had to pull over all the data. So we were swearing over this data migration for... Yeah. Uh, for months. Mm -hmm. And after that, one of the engineers on the project swore that the next system he wrote would have no users and no data. <laughs> <laughs> and it works great! <laughs> when there's just developers and code, it's so simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's man. the baseline for data access. There you go. Start with no data. But does anybody <laughs> agree with me? And you can clap. Don't raise your hand. But if do you, you know, ADO.net, web services, old school, we still doing this? Wow, that's a few. All right. Well, you know, ADO.net is the core of what a lot of these things are built on. It's sure. just that, you know, back in the day when .NET first came out, we were all learning the, the core data sets and data mm -hmm. readers and all that stuff because mm -hmm. we had to. Yep. Right? And Microsoft's abstracting those down into a lower layer now. That's what they're doing. And building uh, Astoria and, and the services layer on top of those. So we don't have to think about it as much anymore. Yeah, but, I guess I like to think about it. And, you know, I, I kind of... I kind of feel, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm just doing an application that's accessing, I don't know, four or five tables, and, you know, I don't know, a dozen or so store procedures, um, it, it seems like I'm investing in a system, like a religion, you know? You have to invest so much faith in this system that it's going to work for you and that you're not going to run into to brick walls. Right. And that's, I think, the thing is with all of these frameworks is they're designed to solve 80% you know, of the, the pain. Yeah. But then you spend 80% of your time on the 20% that they don't solve. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is that if you just go down to the nuts and bolts and do it all yourself, you feel that you're not going to be wasting a bunch of time trying to figure out what the framework can't do. For the applications at the level that I'm working with, yes. Um, but, you know, that's not, you know, big systems that a lot of people work on in the enterprise. So you're talking about systems that are small, a few number of users... Maybe not even team. a few number of users, because you know, ADO.net and web services scales just fine. But uh, just a, a small amount of data. Well, it, it seems more like, a, sorry to interrupt, but a few number of developers. It's well, you yeah, building it. Well, yeah, it's just it, me. Right? Exactly. It, it yeah. seems to me that the big plus of this entity framework approach is that it's tolerant of a lot more developers working on it. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think 
you know, what you're talking about scalability, there's a scalability in runtime of how, how it would scale for data access, but mm-hmm. there's also a scalability of building systems, which has to do with development processes and how many people can be touching the same code base. And right. You were talking about busy work. I've written so many systems where I'll start out by writing these kind of boilerplate data access code that I have some kind of business object base and mm-hmm. I have to add in all of these things for auditing and, and right. it, it, I feel like every project say, oh, here we go again. Right. So you, you look don't to reuse simplify your own. that. Sorry. Well, many times you're with different clients and they, they have different you know, basic requirements and so sometimes you just can't reuse it. Mm. And so you start out doing the same thing again and again and you build a system that has know hundreds of, of tables in it and that busy work ends up consuming like all of your time right instead of the functionality that you want to write so right. then you start looking for well where, where's a framework that does all of that grunt work for me yeah. that's not going to get in my way and there's lots of them out there entity framework you talk about that but there's quite a few other ones as well well i think probably the first the the first thing people did was move to code generators right so i know what code i want to write i just don't want to have to do it yep. so i build myself a little code that writes the code that uses a template, and uh, I guess T4 is sort of the epitome of that now. But, uh, but then, you know, the ORM systems creep in, and it just becomes very alluring to put all your faith in these systems. Yeah. I guess the question I have for you, John, then, is when you hit that 20% left to go and you need all additional effort, I think the bigger fear here is not that I have additional effort, that I'll fail. Yeah. That I can't get over that... 90% down the road is when I finally hit a wall that's like, this isn't going to work. Right. That's what I think I'm scared of more than anything. Is that actually happen, or is it just hard to get over that last little bit? I think you have to have kind of a good ecosystem going. You've got to have people you can ask. You've got to have contacts. You've got to have kind of fallback plans and not plan on trying to solve every problem yourself. So there's some great resources out there. You can talk to people like, you know, Julie Learman or mm-hmm. someone who really knows what they're doing when you get to that really difficult problem mm. and maybe get some help from the Microsoft team. Try not to solve those 20% yourself because mm. you'll spend the rest of your project doing that. So there are easier ways to solve the hard ones at the end. And I think what I heard you say, though, is that there, there's this fear factor, whether that's there or not. You're afraid to go there because you're, you might get paint yourself into it the corner. Right, right. way down yeah. the path. And you don't know until you're two weeks away from when you need to be, yeah. and now you're screwed. Yeah. Right. And it, can I say that on the radio? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you can say a lot more than that, man. Don't hold back. I think as well, you kind of have to, you have this fear about whether you're investing in learning this framework if it's still going to be around in two years. And so people who went down the, you know, the link to SQL route, they kind of maybe ended up in a dead end here. Yeah, I'm and still, I'm still well, cringing about that one too. Yeah, I'm still mad at Microsoft about that. One. Oh, no, no. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. It's not that it's going away because software doesn't ever go away, right? Projects are never done. They're abandoned, I think is your yes. quote, Richard. Yeah. But uh, so your link to SQL code isn't going to magically stop working. No. But they're just not investing new cycles in it. There's, so if there's there things any, in link to SQL that annoy you, they're you, not getting fixed. They're not going to get resolved. Yeah, exactly. So, so what you do is you look at where is all the energy right now? Where, where are the smart people at Microsoft? You know, where are the smart people at Telerik? What are they doing mm. when, when it comes to tools and, and technologies? And it seems to me like it's an awful lot of energy is going into this same technology stack. It's... Obviously, SQL Server and, and ADO.NET is kind of there. Then there's Entity Framework. 
there's RIA, mm -hmm. there's Silverlight, XAML, you know, WPF as well. Mm -hmm. that, that's just kind of, the, to me, the stack of choice. That's, that's where all the energy is. And then, of mm -hmm. course, cloud services, which is a whole topic in itself. Right. Right. But if you go, if you follow along those lines right now, it feels like you're not going to be left in the cold anytime soon. Are we giving Entity Framework a free pass here just because Microsoft produced it? Shouldn't we be considering older, more mature ORM products, the N-Hybrid, ACL, BL Gens, and there, I know there's others. I don't know. Have you used any of those? Uh, not personally, but there's also... Um, Telerik has open, open access. Oh, of course, yes. Mm -hmm. so I mean, the thing is, the fact that there's a lot of companies and a lot of groups building products to try and solve this problem speaks to me of there isn't a definitive solution. And it depends as well, because sometimes your requirements are that, say you need to use Oracle on the back end. Mm -hmm. Well, so in that case, Entity Framework might not be your best choice, because what's out there in, in the provider space is kind of beta-aware and, and maybe not something that you want to build your enterprise solution on. Right. Mm. Whereas Open Access actually does support Oracle. So it's not just, if you're in a totally Microsoft stack, then it makes it a bit harder to go choose something else because you, you feel that if you're getting everything from the same vendor, then there's a bigger chance that it's going to work together. Mm -hmm. And there's one place that you can complain, even though it's not quite like that in reality. Right. And I'd also yeah. say that um, that's just, you'll get approval for that. If you're already in the Microsoft stack, you don't have to go and say, we want to use Anhibernate now or this other tool and convince your management that, or your your stakeholders that, that you need yeah, to Yeah, the old that. line was nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Now right. it's nobody ever got fired for using Microsoft. Because we're using the rest of their tools. Right, we're already you committed. Know, and we it. already have a subscription, too, that you know, they, they, they tie you in with the subscription model. Yeah. Right. Uh, MSDN, and I can download the tool and so use it. Another interesting pattern I've seen with data access is that the whole rise of Silverlight mm -hmm. and asynchronous programming Right. has forced us to change the way we access data. Because yeah. you used to have options. You could make good choices and bad choices. If you wanted to make a choice, like if you wanted to actually fetch or fill a data table mm -hmm. and return it from a method, you could. Absolutely. And there's yeah. a lot of code out there that does it, and it just binds that data table to a grid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a no-go. You try and move that to Silverlight, you have yeah. to... It's more than rethinking that you don't have a data table. Right. You that, have to rethink a lot of things. Right. Yeah. It, all of the editing features, I mean, all of the stuff that we, the reason we did that is we got all of this capability for free, and as soon as we go into the Silverlight model and, and that remote access model, it all breaks. Yep. Well, uh, to shift gears a little bit here, Walt, data binding in XAML and yes. Silverlight, this is something that you're very much into. Yes. Um, there, is it me or is XAML just extremely unintuitive when it comes to syntax of, of data you. binding? It's me? <laughs> it's you. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's yeah, you too? Apparently it's Anybody them else? too, Walt. Uh, you think it has anything to do with the fact they've been using it for four or five years? Yeah. So um, I, guess, I guess, you know, I'm, you know, this is Carl's bitch mode, I guess. But um, no, I, I, it, it's just kind of difficult to find it, to figure it out. I mean, you can obviously go online and look at samples and see, ah, that's how you do it. But, uh, Are you talking just basic binding here? Are you no, talking more like the... All sorts of things. I mean, bi basic binding is interesting because you can bind to um, uh, a property that changes, but what about things that, you, you know, such as events, in, in sort of getting rid of the events handling in your code and moving that into XAML requires a certain... Well, that's why you have... That's why these... Uh, 
three tier or a, a three layer models that come up, like model view view model. Yeah, right. Right, that solves well. It solves some of the problems, but gives you others, like most technologies. Right, and then it's a learning curve. Right, right. it simplifies things. You get the unit testing for free. Uh, yeah. It's unit testable. I shouldn't say it's free, but it's it's easy to test. But then, um, if you got multiple views, how do you have multiple views talk to each other? And you go mm. back to event models then, but you don't want the tight coupling that you get from right. the tradition. Well, you have to have a reference to the other class. So one of the things that, one of the tenets that I've been going on as I'm doing Silverlight development is try to reduce as much code in the code behind as you can and make it declarative in, in XAML. But you, know, I, you always find those situations where you have to handle an event and you have to set some stuff yes. manually. Do you see um, XAML as maybe the spec of XAML or what you can do with XAML expanding to just sort of take over all of that code behind in the future? Or are there, is there always going to be stuff that we have to write? Well, I think there's going to be some code you have to write. But you did know they did update the XAML specification um, in .NET when .NET 4 came out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Unfortunately, none of the tooling ever took advantage of the new pieces they added to it. So a lot of people don't know it's out there. Really? I did not realize it. Didn't, I presume that the tooling did it automatically. I haven't even tried it. No. So there's a lot of things like in the new XAML spec, one of the requirements when you instantiate an element in your XAML is it has to have a parameter uh, public constructor on it mm-hmm. in order for, so you can instantiate it in your, in your markup. Mm. Well, a lot of people came along and said, well, we have these alternate constructors we'd like to be able to use. And they didn't have any syntax that for them. So they modified the spec, came up with a way of doing that, released the spec, released the but there's no tools. You can't go into Visual Studio or Expression Blend and say, here's... A parameterized constructor. Right. Yeah, here I want to call this, and here's the parameters. Right. Now, you can do it if you do your own command, uh, if you do it in a, a text editor and mm-hmm. hand compile it. Mm-hmm. But nobody does that. Oh. Interesting. You? And what, oh. if, what if you're doing inversion of control or you're using a factory or something like that? Well, that's, well, that's available. You just have the middle tier pattern then. You put that, right. that thing, the view model or this presentation is what model or whatever. MVVM it is. really solves. Right. Yeah. Because you can use MVVM without using inversion of control, right, or dependency injection. But a lot of people do that because then they start saying, okay, now that I've got these, these objects I'm binding to, maybe I want to swap one of those out. Right. So, and we all know how to do that, there's a pattern for that. Mm. So the whole uh, MVVM thing has been an interesting trip for me because I started out not knowing anything about it, and I noticed that that's all people are ever talking about now, mm-hmm. MVVM. Mm-hmm. So I read a bit about it. It's like, eh, okay. But then you start actually using it, and, and you get this aha moment where it's like, wow. This is incredibly this is a, liberating. This is a very nice separation of concerns. Yeah, it ends yeah. up with a very nice project structure, and, and it has all these benefits. And so for any of you guys that are out there and, and doubtful like I was, I, I'd say just you need to jump in there and start trying this out. I believe! You will, I find, believe. <laughs> you will find yourself writing a lot less code, and you will find your, your, yeah. your programs are a lot more organized. Have you actually used the pattern in any of your um, no. applications? No, 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 I yet? haven't. I've certainly seen quite a lot of it. But And we were just talking um, on the other panel that we did yesterday here mm-hmm. at DevReach about that, about using MVVM and how your job as a programmer is to just supply these plumbing tools in the model, in the, in the, in the view. 
and the designer is the guy who actually writes the application yep. and, and can own the view. They can own the view safely. Right. Yeah. That's so the that's, that's the, the free thing. liberating thing, and that doesn't have to be a programmer. And we always hear from I mean a designer. That's what Microsoft always says. Yeah. Yes. They're actually moving away from that message now. They're not pushing it as hard. The designer tools are more like the designer on your developer group. Well, and, and so I think developer that's designer. exactly the way Scott described it was this creative developers, the folks right. that can sort of handle the design side of development. Well, you all know um, there's that person on your team you never want to let build the UI. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that guy. It's the yeah. other guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I have a, a talk at, at, at five today that's, that's actually part of it is how to get good design time data mm. um, into your into your program so that you can actually see data in design time and then fire that up in expression and then your designer can actually see some real data. This is what the data is going to look like. Instead of ipsum lorem, yeah. and actually have the right shape and, and then it goes way further towards getting something that's going to work other than a mock-up that ends up being just unusable. Yeah. So sufficient space for certain fields and I mean, right. that sort of thing, if this is what the data is going to feel like. Right. So you know, this, this is actually going to be 10 paragraphs long, not three words. Right. Yeah, and it looks sense. like it's similar in shape, like you said, to what you're going to produce eventually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're doing it now because it's quick. you can mock it up quickly yep. in the designer. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, poll the audience. How many of you, by clapping, uh, by applause, have uh, used MVPM pattern? Wow. More surprise. More than and, half. And how many have not? Clap. And how many were here for the pizza? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would yeah, I would say a little more than half, maybe 60%. Yeah. Don't you yeah. think? That's encouraging. It is encouraging in terms of an approach. Just seems to it seems to be catching on. I always worry because it felt like it was being overhyped. It did. Right? It felt like it was being pushed on us, but it's interesting to see the people well, grab it. The interesting thing about to me about model VV model, when I first cro- came across it. I hadn't heard of it, and I'd been using WPF for a while. Mm-hmm. And then I started hearing about other people doing this thing. I hate the name, by the way. I've never liked yeah. the acronym. Yeah. Yep. Um, model v- MV squared. Yeah. Uh, be backwards squared. Yes. Yeah. VM, whatever. But um, so there was a lot of people that were trying to make th- this thing work. They, they, the, uh, we're all moving towards the same goal, which is right. we know we want to separate our concerns and want testability. And they were all moving towards that. That's why there was all these frameworks out right. there. Right. They had this. Yeah, exactly. Right. And there's probably 11 or 12 different MVVM frameworks out there. Some of them have kind of died and abandoned. But there's, you know, one like Laurent Bouzion's, um, his MVVM Lite. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's getting a lot of traction. And I could go on name and others. Prism, of course, is being yep. updated. Um, but we're all feeling it. But if all these people are moving towards that, that tells me there's some sort of consensus out there that's saying we want to move towards this goal. Right. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't just it wasn't Microsoft centric. They weren't the one pushing it. Right. They sort of jumped on, which generally seems to be the right thing to do. And they came up with the original spec, um, but it was everybody else that was trying to come up with the frameworks. Yeah. Mm. Now I like it when Microsoft figures out where the parade's going and runs in front. <laughs> that that to me is better than trying to tell us where the thing's going to go. Well, it's just a refreshing. <laughs> I think. <laughs> And the other thing that I find interesting about this, you've been, how long have you been doing Microsoft development? Development? Uh, 1990. A long 80, time. 88, 89. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Microsoft's promises a lot of binding frameworks over the years. Oh, yes. yes. And, and how, many, how many of them have been successful and that we have actually used? Yeah, one. Well, they've, 
they've all been so tightly coupled. Yeah. Right. And there's been other things like they don't support stored procedures on the back end. Like mm-hmm. who, who thought of that feature? <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, the, the, here's, we, here we have a binding framework that works. It really works. It does. And the assumption in the model view view model is that we're going to use all the binding we possibly can in the view. Right. Right. And our, the, the assumption then, or the, the relaxation that we can have as a developer is that we trust Microsoft's binding to just work. Right. That means I don't have to do any of that work myself. And that's, I can just move my, my code into my view model, mm-hmm. yeah. whether it's in properties or uh, commands or whatever. And I just trust that the binding half is going to work. Yeah. Right. right. And that the tooling will be there so we can pull that out and the designers can work on it. Right. That's the liberating thing. Right. And the fact that I got this unit testable thing that I can actually write real tests against and not have to do uh, UI testing tools. Yeah. Right. So going back to your question about the code, my philosophy on the code is uh, a little bit of code behind is okay in the view. Um, like you can create your view model there and, and maybe pop up a message box. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you sign yourself writing any logic right. in your code, right. that should be forbidden. That's if you have an if flag. statement yeah. or a select case in your code, yeah, interesting. that does not belong there. That, that is not testable now because if there's a mm-hmm. branch in your code, you've got to write a test for it. And where's the code sitting? Yeah. It's in your view. It's in the view. And now you've just made your life miserable. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. It's really good to hear definitive thou shalts and thou shalt not. You will do it this way. <laughs> because, because that's something that I could actually live with and that makes sense. But, you know, anytime you hear an absolute, you know, always do this, never do this, you know, the hair on the back of my neck goes up. But well, uh, for some reason, I'm getting warm fuzzies about this thou shalt. It's very difficult in every new project where you kind of update your skills and you've been reading about stuff and can't wait to use it. And then you're faced with this bewildering array of choices. Mm-hmm. And I, you right. almost get paralyzed. What am I, you know, I going to do? Mm-hmm. So having this guidance out there actually makes it a little simpler because you can say, well, a lot of people are using this and it works, so I don't have to spend the next month figuring out what I'm going to do. Yeah, I was almost thinking, so what kind of code would I put in there, into the view? Is it just behaviors that I want the, the, the view to, to have? Well, even there you end up putting that stuff in things like converters. And right. you, know, you, you can find ways to, to eliminate a lot of, of, of stuff that might end yeah, up I in already, your view. I already used the word behavior, so I'm already thinking XAML that way, and why would I put that in code? Con- converters, really, you just nailed it there, John. The, that can really help you take the code out, converting one type to another, essentially, when one is called for. And it's essentially doing an if-then. Uh, you know, it's essentially logic that says, if you get this value, return this object. But, but it's testable. Like if you put, but it's it's testable. easy to test when it's in your, uh, right. your, your class that's implementing I-value right. converter. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing I like about some of the frameworks out there now is that you can declare a lot of your intent be it XAML or be it attributes. So like if you're using mm. RIA and you're using Entity Framework, you can put a 
different kinds of validation attributes on mm -hmm. your on your fields, and mm -hmm. then it will generate code, and then you have these smart client side components like the the toolkit data form that will actually understand how to use all these validation attributes and you take care of a lot of all that stuff, but you're not actually writing reams of code to do that. Mm -hmm. It yeah. picks it up from the database, it sees this is a required field, this is a max string length, you can define your own custom you're rules. You're talking data annotations now. Yes. Yes. And so you can you can get a lot of that behavior just also declaratively. Mm. And that wouldn't be considered logic, would it? But they are, but it is a rule. I mean, it's a rule. For it's sure. a business rule that you're actually. This is a gray area. Yeah, yeah. So you're in a business class, but you're putting a data annotation on this, saying when this is. I want this to be in uh, a, a hidden field or something, but mm -hmm. you're putting it in a non-UI specific way. Mm. But he, now, am I actually? I'm putting my DBA hat on. Okay. There. Is, are you picking up the? Uh, constraints that I put on my database and yes. propagating that in? Yes. So the, then now the question is, when we decide to change that and you push that back to me as a DBA and I lift that constraint, I change that field width or some other rule change, how well does that propagate back into the Well, code? so models are kind of differently good at uh, kind of round trip and, mm -hmm. and refreshing and uh, the entity framework is so-so on, on that, in that mm -hmm. respect. You have to regenerate your model. You have to consciously do that. Right. And you right now a lot of things disappear when you regenerate your model that you have to add back into yeah, the Yeah, see, that's a cycle of coding that I'm never yeah. comfortable with. The database mm -hmm. administrator says, yeah, we made some changes, refresh. You refresh, and all of a sudden, now you're figuring out how to put the Band-Aids on. And there's some know, other models. I think the, the enterprise library has some, some practices where you can put these rules into a separate markup file that mm. then gets some code generation gets done when you're compiling, and, and mm. we'll put those rules in place. So... You can have them separated out and, and more more in one place. But I, and I like this side. You know, on one hand, you like the idea that constraints all the way to the back end, all the way back at the data, then are flowing through one particular way. But at the same time, when you go to the markup approach, it's almost like you can push it from the middle. Right? That you could adjust those constraints in an ORM layer somewhere in that middle tier, and then push it onto the database to have it applied, and then push it forward so that it shows up in the app. That would be awesome. Mm. Don't, yeah, I don't know that that exists, but I feel like that would be nice. <laughs> so another thing I've been, been battling with recently is Windows Phone Development, which is a special subclass of, of Silverlight Development, Silverlight 3, basically. Um, and your data access options there are kind of a little smaller, but mm -hmm. one of the really exciting ones is OData, or whatever we want to call o -data. it. OData. People like OData? Clap. Uh, okay. Uh, not a lot of people know what it is. Is that what's they just, going on? Yeah. Clap. Okay. Clap if you don't like OData or you don't know what it is. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry clap if you know. feel like clapping. <laughs> <laughs> if you're happy and you people, know it, people are still alive out there. So uh, you you did a project recently using OData, right? Right. We actually we we have our own OData service running in the cloud and. Uh, we wrote the conference application for DevReach and for some other conferences. And mm -hmm. so each conference that we support has an OData feed that surfaces things like sessions and speakers and tracks and tags. Look, for those who don't understand what OData is, you know what RSS is, all right? It's a way to get back piece, little pieces of data. But imagine RSS with the ability to do CRUD operations. Yeah, that's uh, with the ability to just add to the URL 
what you want to do. You want to query. You want to return. You, you want to query a, a, a source instead of just returning a static list. Um, you want to add or you want to update. Most of most of the power is in querying, though. And yeah, there's so many there's so many public O data feeds now. Uh, Netflix is probably the the biggest. Uh, there's a no, large the number of government um, O data feeds cropping up now. Hmm. Yeah, Microsoft has this uh, project codenamed Dallas. Right. Just like a, you think of it as data as a commodity. So when you're writing these great apps. Many times you're limited by what data you have access to. Mm -hmm. And if you could only get a handle on that data, you'd make the best app. Well, now you can. So you can go to this marketplace. You can search for data and say, you know, I need to find data about vehicle sales in right. North America. And you'll find all these different feeds that, that provide that. And you can see samples of it and say, well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And then there's some of this data is free. A lot of it is free. Yeah. Some of it you pay for, so it's a subscription where you mm -hmm. pay to have access to this data. Mm -hmm. But it's all OData, and the OData format is self-describing. So these payloads that have the actual um, data in it, they have yeah. types. So you can in the XML, you can see if they're integers, whatever they are. And there's a lot of work going on there right now to make that even more strongly typed and, and, and flexible. But that means that tools can read OData, and they can do things like generate C-sharp wrappers that you can query with link and they'll mm -hmm. emit OData queries and cast the results back to strongly typed objects. Or you can use them in Excel or there's all kinds of OData explorers out there that are free. So it's a very kind of easily usable data format. It's hard to dislike OData just because there's so much good stuff happening with it really mm. quickly. Yeah. 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 Amazingly quickly, really, when you think about it, because the spec's only been out 18, has it about 18 yeah, months, two years? And, and getting back to the Windows Phone thing, you can consume OData on, on the Windows Phone. You can consume it in Silverlight, and it's very easy to work with. Yeah, and once you have it, you can either go the route of using you know, add service reference and getting some classes generated, or you can just work with the XML. You can use link to XML or some other way to extract the data from the XML, but it becomes just very handy to yeah. use. And then I'd add that the data binding part just works the same as in Silverlight. Sure. Right. So you, you get your data through the whatever your OData feed, but once it comes to actually writing the XAML for this phone, it's the same. And mm -hmm. like I, I I showed a demo earlier today where I, I took exactly the same code in my WPF application and just copied it over to a Windows Phone application and it just works. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's very cool. And well and it didn't expect that either. I mean I know it's all XAML, but you figure the subset would be more restrictive than that. Were you pretty Well careful? I also knew that I was working with uh, a, my demo would work because I was using a simple you know, uh, business object as the source. Oh, okay. So you were careful. Yes, I was careful. But it, it looked good. <laughs> yeah, it was a good demo. Yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> Just to see the phone pop up like that. So you talked about a short cycle on, on OData, and I think that's the thing that we're seeing is the technologies I really believe in right now all have that property that they're iterating like crazy. Mm, right. You look at Silverlight, you look at RIA, you look at OData, all these things we're talking about, they've got some really sharp people there, and they are just churning out releases. Mm. I mean, very short life cycles, and they're listening. These guys listen to feedback. They, yeah. they solicit feedback. You get to vote, you get to request features. They're much, something has happened, I think, at Microsoft where they're Scott listening. Guthrie. Yeah, has happened Scott to Microsoft. Happened. Yeah. Uh, it's good. I think it's great if you're if you're into that technology and you really need to 
you know, you need the latest and greatest and stuff, and you are keeping up with that. It's not so good if you're trying to get into it from the start because you know there's so many versions of things. We talked about that earlier, but I, I agree. I mean, if you're if you're into Silverlight and RIA services and and OData and all these things, the the the, the fast cycles really keep you going. Yeah, so there's nothing worse. Keep- there's nothing worse than getting stuck on something, needing a feature, and then having to wait for, you know. We've been long. through those long cycles. Yeah. Remember the SQL Server one? Where it yeah. was like yeah. six years between releases. Yeah, 2000, right. 2005. That mm-hmm. was a fun stretch. That was a yeah. long wait. Yep. So I think this is keeping the, the tools developers on their toes, though. Mm. Yes, I, absolutely. I actually well, remember what tools developers are falling behind. We're we're obviously missing tooling on significant features in Tools, components. Yeah. I remember going to one conference where all of these booths, we had a booth there, and everyone had these fantastic grids for WPF, and the whole conference was just on fire about Silverlight. And everyone was asking, well, do you have a Silverlight grid? Yeah. And they were all squirming. and yeah, uh, um, Real soon now. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> they all got caught by that one. Are we, yeah. I'm, I'm having a tougher time distinguishing between the two. Do we really need to talk about WPF and Silverlight or can we just talk about XAML now? Well, we had that conversation this afternoon. Yeah. It's like I really think there are lots of pieces that are exactly the same in WPF, Silverlight, and Silverlight for the phone. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting tired of the differentiation. So I'm, I'm like, we should call it XAML programming or something I agree. like that. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. there's this 50% that's exactly the same. And when you, mm-hmm. So we can just assume that this part works and there's these little flavors of right. bits. Like the data annotations work really well with Silverlight. They don't work at WPF. If you know, but if you know the fund, most of the fundamentals of XAML, you can apply those everywhere. Right. And it feels mm-hmm. like the parts that are missing are not kind of missing intentionally, they just are not there yet. Mm. That there will be a release coming down the, the, the road that's going to unify those missing pieces. Yeah. Was that a question? Was that, that a, was question a question directed at me? Well, I missed it then. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like the, the differences that do exist between the different versions of XAML are just temporary, that the idea is to have you know, one XAML to rule them all. I, you know, I, uh, the whole one to rule them all thing is something that I've wrestled with, and Richard and I sort of have different ideas about mm-hmm. it. Um, I'm, I don't like that idea, just because there, there are some things where... You know, we were talking about this just yesterday. Mm-hmm. You, the idea of writing one application that runs on an iPhone, that runs on an Android phone, on a Windows Phone 7, is very appealing because you don't want to duplicate your work. But yet, if you do that, there are going to be serious problems because every phone implements has different rules for user interface yeah. design. Every, uh, and, and so things aren't going to work as well on everything. Java, yeah, good no, example I, I, of I that. I totally don't mean having some kind of cross-platform UI language that would work across all different devices. You also have form factors. So yeah. the UI you design for a phone that's small is completely different than the UI you design right. for a desktop application. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's those factors too. But, but what I mean is like when commanding was missing, I think, in Silverlight 3, right? Yeah. That was because they didn't, hadn't added it yet. Yeah. Oh, so okay. it's missing from the phone, but... Well, there's no reason for that. We're yeah. all pretty sure it's going to be there in the next release. Yeah, yeah, well, if you're talking about like 3D that doesn't exist in Silverlight, well, Silverlight could have 3D. But if you're talking about, you know, I don't know, utilizing resources that are only available on, on a Windows machine, right. well, those aren't going to apply on a phone. Oh, that, isn't that the problem that Silverlight has, right? They, they want to do 3D. In yeah. order to make that work, they're, they're going to have to use the graphics 
processors, and that means that they have to figure out how to make that the runtime use what's on the Apple. Yeah. Right? And so given the choice, when you ask developers if you'd rather have like a database feature, mm-hmm. you want a database feature um, for Silverlight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What if we can't get it working on, yeah. on the Mac yet? Do you want to wait two product cycles, or do you say forget it and we'll do it uh, just on the Windows, like mm-hmm. ComInterrupt? So, yep. yeah, right? there's no common interrupt on Mac. No, well, and right. Silverlight like 4 basically broke that whole thing. It's like we're admitting we want to jump out of the browser and we're going to be operating system specific again. Yep. Yeah. They're, they're already going that way. I do appreciate that there's bi-directionality between the teams. It's, the Silverlight team builds something and you see it show up in WPF later and WPF guys build some things and it shows up in Silverlight later. So, But I also feel like those teams are running into each other. Like Eventually, there ought to be one team. Yeah, I think so. I just like the fact that I can leverage my skills over and over sure. again. Yeah. That's for me is really handy. And you know, the Surface used WPF. Not that anybody ever had one. Your joke about having a fifteen thousand dollar coffee table, cable, coffee yeah. table. But the fact is, if I needed to do that for a job, a contract came up. It wasn't that big of a switch for me to move over to that. Yeah. Right, area. I'm going to just totally shift gears and ask okay. you because we have the experts here. We might as well ask some questions about what they know. Um, the coolest XAML tip. In your sessions, in your books, or whatever. Are you going to put me on the spot Yeah, now? I'm going to totally. pick, pick like the coolest thing, the time, <laughs> saves the most time, or something like that. Well, XAML I, tip. I, I'd have to say, while you have a, a breather to think here, um, <laughs> the design time data trick is, is pretty nice. Setting, setting your app up to have some really good design time experience, I think just is, is so cool. Elaborate. Well, there's a session at 5 o'clock that elaborates <laughs> For very hour. deeply on that. If only the listeners were all in Bulgaria today. <laughs> yeah. But um, the design time data trick basically is being, first of all, able to detect that you are in design time, which is fairly simple. Mm-hmm. So okay. There's a, a call for that. And then actually creating a set of... Um, data that, that represents a good set of, of data for your application for each form. So you build up oh. really everything that you would be fetching in runtime, but you do that in your constructor. So you've got, you know, in, in your application, in your resource dictionary, you can create this whole wealth of data that you can then bind to throughout your UI. Wow, at design time. So you're looking at it in Visual Studio, you're looking at it in Expression Blend, and you're just seeing all this data, and then you can fiddle around with properties to see you how see it looks. You see how it really looks, yeah. instead mm-hmm. of just a bunch of blank So maybe it's not, it's, not a, you know, it's not a one-line trick, but it's, I think, something that's extremely helpful. Are wow. you going to show how to make it so that at runtime it swaps out to the, yes. uh, the, the runtime version? Yes. Even if you don't have the runtime version uh, ready? No. <laughs> That's another talk for that, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walt, any favorite tips? One of my favorite parts uh, that's rather unknown in uh, WPF, uh, I don't believe this is part of Silverlight priority binding. Priority binding. Yeah, so there's a, uh, you know, there's three binding classes in WPF. There's binding, multi-binding, and priority binding. Okay. And I find most people never heard of priority binding. So what that allows you to do is it's a type of multi-binding where you have two sources and one target, or mm-hmm. five sources and one target. Well, in order for the binding engine to resolve the two sources, you have to pass it to a converter. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Priority binding is slightly different. Priority binding, you set up two bindings, for instance, and you prioritize the order. You, 
flip a switch usually to turn on asynchronous binding so that they call they go call the two sources on a background worker thread mm -hmm. all right so what happens is they both go out asynchronously to get the data and the first one that returns is the one that puts the data in the ui wow right but it keeps listening. So if later one of the other sources returns, it looks at it and sees what priority level it has. And if it's higher than the one you're currently bound to, it, it swaps them out. Nice. Cool. Interesting. No code to do that. So that wow. would be neat for like you know, positioning if you're getting your location and you get a, a, a return. Oh, on the phone, you're talking. Cool. Yes, that would be a great use of that. I hadn't thought yes. of that. Yep. So a quick reply with a rough location and a slower reply with a precise location and you bind it to the same. Right. I used it for a list. You know how you... Uh, Oftentimes you'll get a list of data, and you want 30 rows, and you're pulling them back, but you're not getting them yet. So, you, but you want to show the user something like, you know, um, retrieving yeah. data. Right. So you set up two bindings in your business. Uh, I'm sorry, two properties in your business or in your view model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're both lists, but one only has a single string in it, uh -huh. and that's the low priority binding. Uh -huh. Right. So the first thing it grabs is that string immediately and puts it as the first row in the list box, saying loading data. Cool. Mm. Then three seconds later, the whole thing data. comes in. Mm. I've been wanting to do that in my app. I'm going to have to hit you up for that one. I'm showing it at uh, 4 o'clock. For awesome. having a blockage, you just racked out an awesome yeah, that tip was, there. That's well, pretty not cool. bad for, you know. <laughs> pretty cool. But no it wasn't idea. a one-liner, though. Oh, no, but yeah, better than that. Yeah. I guess the big difference in dealing with the phone compared to other devices in the sort of data binding, data communications world is you can lose a connection. Mm -hmm. uh, how much, do you have to do much in terms of working on the app? Have you actually dealt with, uh, I lose my... I haven't, have you? Yes. Actually, um, this conference application has that very thing where to be really useful, it's nice if you can walk around and see what your favorites are, right. even if you have lost your connection. Yeah. Because you still want to know which room it's in yeah. and what time they start. So you really don't want to have to have a live connection to just check that information. So what we do there is you know, when we download the data, we actually save it to isolated storage so it's available on the device. And then we decided to make it a conscious user action to refresh that data. So the beginning of our application, there's a reload button. So if they feel that they want to get more up-to-date data and they can risk kind of replacing what they have that's mm -hmm. the current safe bet, then they can hit that button. Oh, so I see you say it's your fault. You right. didn't get the data. <laughs> so you are tossing out their data before you fetch the new stuff. Well, we don't have to do that, but right yeah. now we are. Actually. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the whole thing is occasionally you could poll to see yeah. if it's... I mean, even better would be like a version number of the data yes. set. It's like, I've got this one, what do you got? Well, I've got a later one now. Oh, I've got enough connection here to go pull that down and repop. So that's it. what we're doing in our next version is we have a cloud service that's looking at all of these different pieces of data mm -hmm. and it's keeping track of the latest modified date on that data. And right now it's pushing out a push notification to the device mm. saying there's more data and then the device can pull it down. Right. And so it, you're sending one little mm. simple piece of information, I have an update. Yep. And then at that point you will get the rest of the data. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah. and, and especially if you could do like an update as a number, so that you could know, you know, how far behind yeah. are we? You know, is it a minor rev or a major rev? Is yeah, and if if you have something like many of the phone apps have this little badge that says you've got three voicemails and ten emails that you right. haven't read. Well, you can apply that same thing if you have say ten data items that are new. Yeah, and you know each subscriber where they're at, what timestamp they have. In your subscription database, you can send out a notification with the right number yeah. that actually well, gets something in your, actionable. In your conference app, saying you know two session changes this yep. afternoon, right? You know that's very relevant to somebody who's yep. at, at at a conference, especially if those sessions are in your favorites. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I like that part. Uh, Lino showed me the app 
the, uh, the other day, and I like that part where you can store the favorites, so you can pick the sessions, especially, you know how it is at a conference where you, there's two sessions you really want to go to, or sometimes three sessions, and you, you wait until the last possible second to make your choice. You're standing out there in the hallway going, oh, which one's it going to be? Um, so in yours, you can store the favorite. Yeah, and that's a typical example of where the view model is handy, because the model in this case is the session. And in the databases, there's no concept of a favorite because we're actually storing that on the phone. Right. So we add in the is favorite property to the basic model, which is the session. So the session view model has an is favorite, which mm. we can then bind to the UI to show a checkbox if it's your favorited. So mm -hmm. typical example of how you could do that. I still want to push that back to the database, but I'm an analytics guy who well, wants to see what people are favoring. The thing is that our, our application works with all different people's conferences. So we don't have... The database. Right. It's someone else's, and some of them maybe have favorites, some of them don't. Right. So you want to provide that either way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, guys, it's been a it's been a nice hour or so talking to you guys, and uh, always interesting to talk about XAML and data access. And Walt, John, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Big hand for Walter and John. Thank you. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, yes, I'm a 